And this morning, as we continue in 1 Corinthians 15, I, I want us to see that what we believe about the resurrection should have deep impact on the way that we live. It should, it should bring us to a point where major changes uh, are evident in our life because of what we believe about the resurrection. Last week, we started in the first section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, and we looked at the foundation as we're in a series on building hope. And we looked at the foundation of our hope. That is where it starts, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. And we build our hope on that true foundation, that it is a fact that we can believe in, that we can put our trust in. And this morning, we're going to look at, at, we've got the foundation laid, so how do we build our life around that? How do we frame up our life around the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? Knowing that the, the hope that we have, the faith that we have, is not just for the past of, yes, I was saved. It's also for right now in the terms of I am being saved, that I'm, I'm continually being changed by Jesus Christ and it gives us something to look forward to when Christ returns and, or when we leave this earth and we know that we are united with him forever. It gives us a hope that there's something more than just this life. And the reason why Paul is writing this section is because there are some in Corinth who were doubting the resurrection. Some of them, not many, but a few may have been doubting the resurrection completely, that Jesus never died, that, uh, that Jesus was never raised from the dead. Excuse me. They, they believed that he died for their sins, but they, some were saying, hey, maybe he was never raised from the dead. But the majority of them did believe in resurrection, but they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection. They only believed that the spirit was resurrected or the soul, because in Greek philosophy, uh, the soul was seen as something that was good and anything material, anything physical was viewed as something bad. And so Paul is saying, hey, look, if we only believe in the resurrection of the soul and not the body, then, man, we are to be pitied among all men. Like, we are missing out because the resurrection of the body, like, God has more for us to physically experience when we are glorified in his presence for those who've put their trust in Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes this letter to, to correct that thinking, because what, what started to happen was what they believed about the resurrection or actually what they denied about the resurrection was severely impacting their lives. Because they figured, hey, if this body is the only chance that I have to experience physical pleasure, then I'm going to experience that. Like, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. Because after this, I just kind of get assumed into nothingness and my soul is there, so I have no other opportunity for physical pleasure. And Paul says, hey, that's, that's not the case. And it was leading them to, to live godless lives. Even though they had trust in Jesus Christ, they had their salvation, it was leading them to a life that, by all intents and purposes, denied Jesus Christ. Some people have called this practical atheism. And I know in my own life that there are moments when I catch myself in the exact same thing. That, that I find myself, now why, why did I make that decision? Why did I choose to do that? Like if I really was believing the resurrection, man, I, I would have made a totally different decision. And praise God that there is grace even for that and that God moves me beyond that and that I, that I don't get stuck in that. And, and, and I don't know if you can relate to that. Maybe I'm the only sinner here this morning. Um, but I want us to look at what are the implications that if we genuine, genuinely believe the resurrection, that we would live differently. A recent study showed that 64% of Americans claim, claim to believe the resurrection, yet many seem confused on how it impacts their everyday lives. And I want to challenge us this morning 
that you would ask yourself this question, does my faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in my future resurrection, does it have an impact on the choices that I make in the way that I live? I want us to first look at why. Why should it, or why does it, or why does it not have an impact on the way we live? And I want us to look at verses 12 through 20 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you turn with me there, or open your phones. That's right, in a movie theater, you can use your phones, right? I'm giving you permission, not just in a movie theater, but in church. Pull out your phones, let's use them. Paul says in verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if the resurrection of the dead... Uh, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, in fact, if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Therefore... Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Verse 19, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. And I love verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And Paul goes on and he says, look, if this is not true, if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is worthless because he is a worthless object of our faith. Because if he didn't do what he said he would do, many of you may be familiar with C.S. Lewis, he says that Jesus is either a Lord, he's the Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. Right? There's no, there's no other option that he either was God's son who died on the cross for our sins, and the resurrection proved that that's who he was, or he was a liar. He knew he wasn't God's son, and he was just saying all this stuff anyways, and he died for a lie, Or he was literally crazy, thinking that he was the Son of God. But the reality is that that tomb was empty. And if, get this, the early church, as it started gaining momentum in the Pharisees and the Romans that wanted to try to stop it, if they wanted to stop it, all they had to do was go open the tomb and say, here's the body. You produce a body and the faith goes away. But the reality is that there is no body because Jesus was raised from the dead. Our faith is not useless. Our faith is is not worthless. So the question is, you know, why is it so important? You know, what do we take away from this? And what I want us to take away from this is that without the right blueprint, our hope will fail. Without the right blueprint, our hope will fail. Blueprint, if you're familiar with building, is your plan. You build according to the blueprint. And if you don't a building, a build according to the blueprint, you get some pretty disastrous results. Uh, I think we've got a couple pictures here. I mean, you can see here, uh, maybe it's a little bright and you can't really see that, but this stairway goes directly into a wall instead of into a door. Not exactly according to the bl- blueprint. You have an air conditioner that goes through the middle of a wall again. And then this is my favorite one. I call this the shower of power. Yeah, not smart. Someone was not paying attention to the blueprint. 
right? You've got your electrical box right there in the shower with you. If we don't build according to the right blueprint, we will have disastrous results. And that's exactly what happened to the Corinthians. You see, they were taking a little bit from the world and mixing it in with a little bit of God's word. They wanted to believe in Jesus' death for their sins, but they were struggling because they were so informed and so overwhelmed by the things of the world that they had chosen to deny and reject what God said and to rely on what the world said. And they were kind of mixing these things together. And I don't know about you, but man, can I be guilty of this from time to time. Like I said earlier, there are moments in my life when, when I look at something and I'm like, you know, I want to believe God's word on this, but I'm having a really, really tough time. I think I'm going to go my own way. And I can tell you that it never works out well. It never works out well for me. We have to believe that, that God's word has a plan for us. And a lot of times what happens is we end up with this line of thinking very similar to what Satan did in the garden with Adam and Eve where he says, you know, did God really say, did God really say that, that it's pure joy to consider it, uh, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind? Because like, I'm in the middle of a trial and it doesn't feel like joy. And rather than saying, you know what, I'm going to trust that God's word is right and I'm going to persevere through this, Sometimes we go our own way, and we look for our own way out. You know, did, did God really say that, that it's better to give than receive? Because, you know, I'm looking at my bank account right now, and I could use a little bit more receiving than giving. Did God really say that I have to love my enemies? I don't know about that. That seems really hard. And what we end up with is what I call cafeteria Christianity, right? How many of you guys, I don't think it... There's many around here, but how do you remember Luby's, right? When I was growing up, Sunday afternoon, man, you went to Luby's. And Luby's, you go through the line, you say, okay, I want some of this. I don't want this. I, and I would get in trouble as a kid because I would get the macaroni and cheese and then I'd get the mashed potatoes. And my mom would always tell me, you can't have two starches. You can't have two starches. Of course, I'd make it to the end of the line. And I was like, no, I don't want the lima beans. I don't want anything green, yellow, orange, or red. I want mashed potatoes, ham, and macaroni and cheese, and then, of course, I want two servings of banana pudding, because that's the best, and then some jello with some whipped cream on top, right? And then we just go through, and we pick what we like, and we leave out what we don't like. And that's what many of us do when it comes to the Scripture, and that's what the Corinthians were doing, because it seemed too hard for them to believe the resurrection. They were taking out what they didn't like and said, okay, we'll take that Jesus died for our sins, but it's too hard for me to believe that he also raised from the dead. So we'll take this part because it makes me feel good, but I'm not going to take that because it's just too difficult. And how often do we do that? And we end up with this cafeteria Christianity rather than Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. Think about him in all your ways and he will guide you on the right paths. It's one of the first Bible verses we had our kids memorize because we wanted them to know that we stand on a firm foundation, that this word right here determines how we think and it should determine how we act. That we let scripture determine what we believe. We let scripture determine how we view things. And that's, that's a hard thing to do sometimes because like I said, it, it's difficult. There are things in there that are hard for us to do and hard for us to hear and hard for us to receive. And sometimes we read things and we're just confused by what it says. And I can tell you that a lot of times those passages that confuse you, those probably aren't the ones that you really wrestle with. 
I love what Mark Twain said. He said, It's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that give me trouble. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that give me trouble. See, I don't know about you, but I really struggle to love my neighbor as myself. I struggle to bear other people's burdens because I start thinking, well, I've got enough problems of my own. I struggle, and I struggle. And what I've come to realize is that when I don't do the things that God has called me to do, even though they're difficult, I end up making God into an idol. And I usually end up worshiping myself rather than the God of Scripture. We must worship God for who He says He is and not who we want to make Him out to be. We must live according to His Word and not what is convenient for ourselves. It's difficult, it's a challenge. But if we don't build with the right blueprint, we're going to end up with a hope that fails, just like the Corinthians. Just like the Corinthians. I want to continue on. I want us to skip down to verses 30 through 34. Paul says this in verse 30. He says, Why are we in danger every hour? I affirm by the pride that I have in you in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope. What good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and, for, and tomorrow we die. So he's quoting one of their own philosophers. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Again, quoting one of their own philosophers. Come to your senses. Stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. You have to forgive me when, when he says, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That's actually a quote from the Old Testament. The second quote is from one of their own philosophers. And what I want us to see in this is that the construction of our lives reveals the source of our hope. Paul talks about a lot of things that he's facing in his life. And he's saying, if I didn't have this hope in the resurrection, I would not do any of these things. I would not choose to do any of these things if I didn't have hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it wouldn't be worth it. You know, there's a lot of people who believe that Christianity is just a good way to live. And if, if I just live this good way, it's, it's just the right way to live, my life will be easy. Well, I would challenge you that when you look at Scripture, go back and read Jesus' own words. He doesn't say, if you're persecuted for following me. He says, when you're persecuted, when you face trials of many kind. There is a lot of pain that comes from being a follower of Jesus Christ. A lot of times it's going to mean that we are separated from the rest of the world in a way that may mean we lose friends. It may mean that people make fun of us. It may mean that we make sacrifices. We go without so that others can go with more. That is the life that we're called to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And if this life is all there is, Paul's saying, man, this is not worth it. This suffering, if there's not something greater after this, it's not worth it. So Paul says, but I choose to live this life because there is something afterwards. There is something more. I'm living for something more. I'm building my life on something more. One of the things we're going to look at next week is, is what happens in the resurrection. We're going to get there when we are resurrected, when, when we receive those glorified bodies and we live in eternity with Jesus Christ. We're going to look more about that. But one of the things that I, I want us to realize is that there are real rewards that are coming for those who honor God with the way they live if they put their trust in Jesus Christ. And, and we're going to see that in just a little bit, but I, I think it's difficult because it's easy for us to fall into this idea that this life is about pleasure. And, and 
then we do everything to avoid pain and everything to seek pleasure. And that's kind of where the Corinthians are because they're thinking that this life is all that there is. Even if we die before Christ comes, we shall be raised at his coming. We will stand before him with a glorified body. And Paul goes on and he's gonna, we're going to see in this area that Paul kind of lists four areas of Christian experience that are touched by the fact of the resurrection that will impact the way that we live. And the first one I want us to see, we're going to jump back up to verses 21 through 27. Paul says, For since death came through a man, and the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and authority, and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For, death is, for God has put everything under his feet. But when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that the way that we view rule and power and authority in our lives is a reflection about what we believe about the resurrection. Because if we believe the resurrection, we know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, a position of power that he rules and he reigns in this world today. And that's hard for us to see because so often we see that, man, there's still suffering, there's still pain, there's still sin, and there's still death. How could Christ be reigning? And this is a struggle because the reality is that the rule and reign of Christ is, uh, the best way I've heard it explained, is already but not yet. He is already ruling and reigning. He is already over everything that happens. But there is a, a time period where things are still allowed to progress because God's desire is that he would give people the opportunity to come to him. But there will come a time when Christ returns when the final enemy, Jesus Christ's greatest enemy, death, will be abolished. Because death was the penalty for sin. Death was meant to separate us from God. It was something that the enemy desired is that, hey, if I'm going down, I'm taking as many as I can with me. And Christ says at the very end, after Satan is abolished, after sin is abolished, death itself will be abolished. Death will be no more. Now here's my question to you as we think about rule and power and authority. And I gotta admit, this is one that I struggle with and I catch myself in it all the time. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning? That he has all authority and that he is in power? Or when you turn on the news and election time comes and your party and your candidate lost, do you fall into depression? Do you need to find a safe space in coloring books and puppies to get yourself through it? Because that is not God's desire and that does not reflect someone who says, you know what, this world, yeah, there are rulers and powers and authority, but you know what, they're not the ultimate authority. They are not the ultimate authority and here's my challenge to you and this is what I've done. This is what I have to preach to myself over and over again when I turn on the news and I get frustrated. I have to say, you know what? If I really want to make a difference in this world, it's not going to be through political policy. 
It's going to be by me loving my neighbor as myself and doing the most loving thing that I can, looking for opportunities to share Jesus Christ with them because this world is not going to be changed by any political policy. It'll be changed one heart at a time. And can't you believe that if, if every person in this world came to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that our political culture and climate would look a lot different? And I want to tell you, again, I say this a lot. Anytime we talk about politics, I want to make it clear. God is not a Republican. And God is not a Democrat. All right? God is God. He is in all power and authority. And our hope is in Him, not in our political figures. And I, I would challenge you, maybe this morning, maybe you're like me, and you turn on the news and you get frustrated. Man, would you ask God this morning, God, help me to trust in the resurrection. Help me to trust that you are ruling and reigning in my life now. And that if you would rule and reign in other people's hearts through the spread of the gospel, that this world would look different. God, give me a passion for that. Let me join in what you're doing. Don't let me, don't let me put my hope in this world. The next thing Paul goes on and he talks about is suffering. Suffering. Paul says, he says, look, I affirm the pride that I have in you. Why are we in danger every hour in verse 30? I affirm the pride I have in you in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. When Paul says I die every day, this is not uh, Romans 6, dying to sin. He's saying, I am physically in danger every single day of my life. I am suffering. And we're going to look at some of that in just a second. He says, I, if the dead are not raised, uh, he says, I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope. If I fought animals in Ephesus with only human hope, what good did that do me? Paul's saying, why would it do me any good to go through all this suffering if the dead are not raised? Why would I choose to suffer? Why would I endure all of this suffering? I want us to look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28, because this is, uh, we call this in staff meeting, Paul's greatest hits, uh, because you're going to see some hits that Paul took. Verse 23, he says, Are we the servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. Forty was considered a death sentence. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. And once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent night and a day, a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers, labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and lacking clothing, not to mention other things. Uh, there is daily pressure on me, my care for all the churches. So Paul goes through and he lists all his suffering. And he's saying, look, if there's not something greater coming, then I am the greatest fool that there ever was to go through all of this. But because I believe there is something greater coming, I am willing to suffer all of that. I'm willing to suffer all of that. Paul says, if we don't believe the resurrection, then we should just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's just enjoy ourselves if there's no bodily resurrection coming. There's a pretty famous, pretty famous hashtag out there, YOLO. How many of you have heard that? Right? You only live once. And I love this. I saw this last week. Um, since it's written in tongues, can I get one of our college students to help us understand this? 
All right, YOLO, LOL, JK, BRB, Jesus. All right, so college students, help me out. YOLO is? You only live once, LOL. JK? Just kidding, BRB. Be right back, Jesus, right? So he's saying, hey, you only live once. Laughing out loud, Jesus is laughing in the grave, JK, I'm going to be right back. And he comes right back. And so the reality is that we don't just live once, right? Just like James Bond, you only, you only die twice. Uh, we don't just live this life. There's a future life that is coming. And I can tell you, um, 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about Uh, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, what we do in this body will come up before review, before the throne of Jesus Christ. And, And I know we hear that word judgment and we think bad things, but the reality is that for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, all those sins, all those bad things that could possibly be reviewed or taken Uh, for punishment, that punishment has already been taken by Jesus. So he's going to show us those things and say, hey, forget about that. I took care of it. Now let's talk about the ways you honored me. Oh, look look at this. Let me give you a reward here. It's a judgment seat. It's like standing before uh, on the Olympic podium for all the good things that we've done. we We get a medal. We get a crown. And he rewards us for all the things that we've done to honor him. And Scripture goes on to tell us that there will be a time when we get to lay those crowns at his feet and honor him and bring him even greater glory. But there is reward for what we do. There is reward. And Jesus even teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and 6. He talks a lot about the rewards that there are. He says in verse 5, he says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted, for great is your reward in heaven. He talks about when, when we give that there's reward when we pray in the right way with the right attitude. There's reward when we fast. He says that there is reward for us. And in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I mean, treasures on earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, what I love about this, so often we only think about the treasures that we're building up for Jesus, but Jesus plays to our own I think, a little bit of our self-preservation, our selfishness. He says, hey, I want you to have the greatest experience you could possibly have in heaven. I want you to store up for yourselves treasures, things that you can enjoy when this life is done for the rest of eternity. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know if it means, like, I'm going to be on a skateboard while other people are driving Ferraris in heaven. I don't know. But I do believe that God has rewards and treasures for us to enjoy physically when we're there. And that when we obey him, when we suffer things, that he rewards us as we honor him through our suffering. Now, I have to be honest with you. Um, I have not endured much suffering in my life. And I don't think many Christians in America have either. But I'll tell you, perhaps the greatest suffering came when my wife and I lost our first child that was stillborn at 26 weeks. I still don't understand, and it still brings me a lot of pain. And yesterday, we had the opportunity to host a table at an event here in Georgetown for families who have lost pregnancies or lost infants. And I can tell you that because God gave us that story, we were able to minister to some of those people in ways that others who have not experienced that just can't do. And like I said, I don't understand why he let us go through infertility and why after three years of infertility, he would give us a child only in my view, to take it away. But if ministering to others 
sharing the gospel with them is the reason that we had to suffer that, then I will suffer that for the sake of the kingdom. I don't understand, and if I'm allowed to ask questions when we get to heaven, that'll be the first one I ask. I want to know, I want to know what he was doing, and I hope he pulls back the curtain and shows me a little bit. But it was not an easy thing to suffer, but I do believe because of the resurrection, not only will that suffering bring him glory, but I believe when I get there, next to Jesus, will be the child I never got to hold, welcoming me into his presence. And I have that hope because of the resurrection. And I live that every single day. I don't know how I could have gotten through that time in my life if I did not have the hope of the resurrection. I want us to move on. Paul says, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why was Paul suffering all these things? It's very clear from Paul's life. He suffered these things for the sake of the gospel, for evangelism. He wouldn't go through these things where he's not trying to win more and more people to Jesus Christ. And he's saying, hey, this is why, this is my motivation, why I can suffer, why I can trust that, hey, Nero is emperor, and I need to pray for him, and I can trust that God's in control because God is in control. And I know that from the resurrection. And I can proclaim the gospel even though it means I'm going to be beat, I'm going to be whipped, I'm going to be eventually beheaded because of the resurrection. But this is my motivation so that more and more people could trust Jesus Christ. And Paul kind of says, hey, if this life is all that we have and there's no resurrection, what in the world are you doing bringing other people into that? Like, just get off. Like, don't bring more people into the suffering and into the pain if there's no hope. But Paul says there is hope, and that, that encouraged me to continue in the resurrection. Now, in the section that we read earlier, verses uh, 20 through and following, Paul goes on and, and he talks about the resurrection. And what I want to be clear is that Paul says that just as in Adam we all died, and he says in Christ we will all be raised, that doesn't mean that our resurrection is the same. You see, for those who are raised in Jesus, who are followers and believe in Jesus Christ, have trusted in him for their salvation, we are raised to eternal life. But we know that those who have chosen not to put their trust in Jesus Christ are raised and will to, to eternal torment separation from God. And John, uh, John 5, excuse me, John 4, 8 tells us this. We have that verse. We don't have it. All right, so John 4, 8, Jesus makes it clear that those who trust in him will be raised to life. He says, the one who does not love, oh, that's the wrong verse. Sorry, that's my fault. I put the wrong, wrong one in there. It's John 5, 28 and 29. That those who have trusted in Christ will be raised to life, but those who have not put their trust in Christ, are raised to torment. And I don't know about you, but that gives me great motivation to be out and to be sharing the gospel. I know for some of us that's intimidating. And I don't ever want you to feel like, unless God puts it on your heart, I can tell you it is not on my heart to go door to door and and knock on people's door and invite them to trust Jesus. Um, But one of the things that, that I believe firmly in is that God puts people in our life every single day where we could have opportunity not just to show them with our lives, but to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to them. And I came across this quote this week. 
One commentator wrote, We weep for believers who have died, but we ought to also weep for unbelievers who still have an opportunity to be saved. And I say, we don't weep for the lost. We fight for them. We don't weep for the lost because there's still hope. We should be fighting for them. And how do we fight for them? I believe we fight for the lost beginning with prayer. Prayer is one of our greatest tools. And it may not seem like we're doing much, but let me, let me share with you just a, a real quick, quick model of prayer. And you can write this down. Someone told me this long ago. It's not my own. I, just like any good preacher, I stole it from someone else. Uh, when we pray about the lost, here's what we pray. We pray lobs, L-O-B-S. We pray for laborers that, hey, maybe we're the first one to share. Maybe we only get to share our story and it's someone else who gets to share the gospel presentation. We pray for other laborers. We pray for opportunity. God, would you just give me the opportunity today? We pray for boldness. B is boldness. That God, when that opportunity shows up, give me boldness. Don't let me shrink back. And then we pray for salvation. God, I'm praying for my neighbor. And I'm praying that that when that opportunity comes, whether it's through me or someone else, that there would be salvation. And I'd have a new brother in Christ. Someone to walk with on their journey as they grow as a follower of Jesus. Last thing I want us to see, Paul says in verse 34, he says, Come to your senses, stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. The last way that the resurrection should impact our lives, at least that we're going to talk about this morning, is our separation from sin. Separation from sin. The believer who is compromising with sin has no witness to the lost around them. If we are just living our lives the same way the rest of the world does, we, we watch the same shows, we use the same language, our behaviors are the exact same, and then we come to them and try to share Christ with them, they're going to look at us like we're crazy. Like, you can't tell me you believe in Jesus and that he's called you to live a different life, that he's going to change your life when your life looks the exact same way as mine, when you complain about the same things I do, when you nitpick and when you whine about the same things that I do, when you watch too much news and you start complaining about the way things are going just the same way that I do, why would I possibly believe that God can change my life when you're not showing that it has changed your life? Again, I came across this quote, what a sad thing to be selfishly living in sin while multitudes die for Christ. Paul says that there are those who are ignorant about Christ. I think he could mean this in two different ways. The first way is that there are people who don't know about Jesus. There are people who don't know about Jesus. The second way, I think Paul's being a little bit sarcastic, and he's calling out the Corinthians who are just living this life of sin He's saying, man, if you're claiming that Jesus died for your sins, but you just keep doing what you want to do and living the way you want to live, you prove that you are ignorant about Christ. There is a big difference between having knowledge about God and knowing God. Knowing Him intimately as your Savior and as your friend. As we close this morning, I want to to encourage us... Those who denied the resurrection in Corinth, it led to them living godless, godless lives. Lives that didn't reflect what they truly believed. And I want to challenge each of us this morning. Does your life really reflect a faith in the resurrection? And I hope you heard from me that I'm not perfect in this. I make mistakes in this. And that's okay. But our hope as a church is that we can walk beside one another. We can encourage 
each other more and more that we would be transformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ and that more and more our lives would reflect the reality of what's coming. And that we could do that together. That God would help us grow. And for some, that may be leaps and bounds of growth. And for others, it may be a tiny step. But we celebrate every single victory as we move closer to that. I thought of a a really challenging and difficult question this week. And I want to end with this. If you stopped believing the resurrection this moment, how would your life look and feel different? Let's pray. Father, God, we ask that our lives would be lived in a way that reflect the reality of the resurrection. Lord, as we go about our daily lives, would you help us to honor you, to demonstrate the reality of what we know to be true, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day was raised by your power. Lord, help us to live in that hope and help us to build our lives around your word that our lives would reflect the hope of the resurrection. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As our ushers prepare for communion at this time, I want to encourage you this morning that if you are here and you have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, that it's not too late. That today can be the day that you begin living in hope that there is something more than just this life. And as we take communion, we remember that Christ's body was broken and that his blood was spilled to cover for our sins. We're also reminded that he didn't stay dead. But he was raised to life, proving that he had overcome sin and death. And as we, as we prepare, I, I want to remind you that at River Rock, we do practice an open table. You don't have to be a, a member to take communion with us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted him as your Savior, then you are welcome to participate with us this morning. If you're not a believer, I want you to know that, that it's okay to just let the elements pass because we believe that communion is a symbol that reminds us of what we believe, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so if you've yet to put your trust in Christ, it's okay to let it pass. And I also remind you that, as we talked about earlier this year, that there are times when perhaps there is something in our lives that's not right either with the Lord or with a fellow believer. Uh, And we need to examine ourselves and see, Lord, am I in right fellowship with you and am I in right fellowship with the people around me? And if that's not the case, that maybe I should abstain from taking communion and make those relationships right. So if that's you this morning, feel free to let the communion tray pass. There's no judgment. After the elements have been passed, take them together.